Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Daniel Gould is the president of the Student Orthopaedic and Musculoskeletal Association and the first Doctor of Medicine student at the University of Melbourne to enter into an MD-PhD program. Dan is investigating the use of natural language processing and machine learning techniques applied to clinical predictive modelling to personalise care for total knee replacement patients. Sid Real is the treasurer of SOMA and an MD-PhD student whose research focuses on the length of stay of patients undergoing total joint replacement surgery and the patient-related factors that impact outcomes of total joint replacement. Welcome, Dan and Sid. Hello, Liam. Hey, Liam. Thanks for having me. So, Dan, as the president of SOMA, can you tell me about how SOMA was founded and the role that it plays as a graduate student society at the University of Melbourne? Sure. So, the society started with the idea of Cade, another PhD student in the Department of Surgery. We basically identified a need for more sort of cohesive communication between the students that we had in the department and Research is associated with Opus, not just through the University of Melbourne, but different universities and even across Australia at Curtin University in WA. Um, we had a research showcase coming up where we wanted some of the students to present and we realized we didn't really have a group of the students to connect. So Cade had the idea that we could start up a graduate student association, uh, affiliated grad group is what they're called with the University of Melbourne. And through that, you can get access to all the resources from the university and funding and so on. So then that was sort of about halfway through 2019. I just enrolled in the PhD and yeah, uh, we basically just went through the process of setting that all up, took a few months and then signed the papers and it was all through in about November. Was it really quite an easy thing to do? There was a lot of paperwork and things like that involved, but setting it up was actually quite good and we were pretty well supported and had the backing of Opus and so on. So it was not not too difficult to process. And we already had a core group of students to fulfill committee roles and things like that. And then access to a bunch of medical students. So we grew very quickly from about nine members, which was basically the committee and a couple of other people, to about 40 or 50 members within a couple of months. Wow. So So as the president of a pretty successful society, what advice would you give to someone who wants to start their own society? I think um, try to identify existing networks that you have, keen students who have a common interest that can serve sort of the needs that they have pretty well, rather than just trying to create something random and then get people from outside. Because that was really the biggest thing and then we could utilize our existing network. So having access to the MD students was probably the biggest, most important thing for us. I remember Sid and I standing on a 46 degree day um, at the start of 2020 when the MD1s had just started and we were just getting signups. And but then the word kind of spreads and anyone who's interested in orthopedics and musculoskeletal health, it kind of starts from there. We're not limited to MD students, but it was just good to have that connection. So Sid, both yourself and Dan are MD PhD students and members of the SOMA Society. The acronyms don't stop there though, because you're both research assistants at the NHMRC Centre for Research Excellence for Optimising Outcomes, Equity, Cost-Effectiveness and Patient Selection in Total Joint Replacement, otherwise known as OPUS. What is OPUS and what is it like being a research assistant there? Well, Liam, OPUS is a bit of a mouthful, so I think I'll just stick with OPUS on that one. (laughs) 
Uh, but Opus is essentially uh, a multidisciplinary group bringing together everyone from orthopedic surgeons to GPs, physios, health economists to really um, change the direction which total joint arthroplasty is being performed in Australia to make it a more equitable form of surgery with better outcomes for patients. And what is it like as a research assistant in Opus? Um, I say it's a pretty easygoing gig. Not a lot of pressure, but at the same time, you're performing jobs where which directly relate to your PhD. So in my case, I fill out case report forms for patients which get uploaded onto the smart registry, which is what Opus uses, and then I use those same patients for my own research. So effectively, I'm, I'm contributing to my own research in that way, but there's also as a research assistant opportunities to get involved in research that's a little bit outside of your domain. So I'm involved with research um, to not only to do with health economics, which is my primary focus, but also to do with sort of opioids, opioid related research, or even helping out with Dan in some, in some of his um, AI or artificial intelligence based research as well. But being a research assistant and a PhD student, is that too much work or is it helpful because they sort of work together in a way? Um, I don't think it's too much work. I don't think it'd be too much even if if my job as a research assistant didn't directly relate to my PhD. I think because a PhD, you know you're in it sort of for a long haul over three years, uh, you can really manage your time well and plan out exactly how you're going to spend your day. So I think you could easily you know, fit in one or two hours of research assisting a day without really affecting uh, your PhD too much. So on the subject of research and the MD program, next year the University of Melbourne will launch their new Doctor of Medicine program that focuses on clinical experience, but also the development of students' capacity to undertake high-quality collaborative research. And Dan, I know you like to refer to yourself as the guinea pig MD-PhD student, but for yourself and, and Sid, you'll both get a head start on the new cohort, and you'll also be able to call yourselves Dr. Dan Gould, MD, or Dr. Sid Real, MD. One of the questions I wanted to know is, are you actually going to call yourself Dr. MD. And could you tell me about your experiences as MD PhD students, including how it got started and particularly focusing on the people who have influenced you? I think it's an odd thing in Australia and I think England where you go to become a surgeon, then you go back to, you'll drop the doctor title. So having a PhD will mean patients can just call me that. And um, how it all started for me was that uh, I came onto the MDRP program, which is part of the, well, I guess what's about to be the old uh, MD programs research project. So MDRP is yes. Medical Doctor Research Project. Yeah, exactly right. So in third year, uh, so in MD3, you select a project in the first half of the year, you meet with potential supervisors and try to pick a project. And then in the second half of the year, you start part-time research. And then the first half of your final year, you do full-time research. So I um, discovered that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon um, just before that opened up. So I knew that I wanted an orthopedic project and Western Health usually releases a lot of projects and that year they didn't release any. So it was really down to Prof Chung's project and two others. So I applied for all of them, sat down with Prof on a Saturday morning at 6am, drove down from Shepparton um, and in typical Prof style. And it was sitting there with eight other students and we were vying for three projects. So you know, you sort of put your best foot forward and um, try to show that you're really keen in anything. And there were three projects on offer and I said I was keen for all of them, but ended up doing a project that was finishing off um, a former PhD student's project, which then in parallel to that, uh, Prof suggested that the way he actually put it was that the medical student cohort is a herd of wildebeest and you need to do something to separate yourself from the herd. And then he started talking about this potential to do an MD-PhD program. 
So I kind of indicated that I was keen for that because I was, but also because I wanted to show that I was keen for pretty much anything that was being offered. And then he mentioned it over the course of the next few meetings. Um, we had fortnightly meetings from there on. And I then, you know, spoke to my wife about it and thought, okay, I've kind of interest, like indicated that I was interested, but didn't really seriously consider it. But what if we did, you know, what if I delayed graduation by three years it means that later down the track I wouldn't have to step away from clinical work and income to do a PhD and so on and it was a balance but we basically came to the decision that there was really no one else getting this sort of opportunity Um, so sort of had to go for it really and we were in a position where we could do so so I put my hand up to prof and that was I thought it was months later turns out it was only about one month after I met him Um, and then eight or nine months after that, the paperwork finally went through after a bit of process. So yeah, it was a, it was a long road, but halfway through 2019, which is the year I would have graduated, I started the PhD and deferred um, the rest of my MD. Right. So other than Professor Peter Chung, did anyone else or, I mean, who are some of your supervisors for your PhD? Yeah. So my other primary supervisor is Michelle Dowsey. So she's the custodian of the um, SMART registry, which is the Arthroplasty Outcomes Registry at St. Vincent's and also the co-principal investigator of Opus. And she's the deputy head of research at the Department of Surgery at um, St. Vincent's. So really experienced researcher. She was a nurse and then went into research, uh, finished her PhD in 2009 And then my other supervisors, I've got a data scientist who's um, an expert in artificial intelligence, James Bailey at the University of Melbourne, a biostatistician who lives in Sweden, but I've met him twice, I think, over the course of my PhD, um, Tim Spellman, and a qualitative researcher who used to be a physiotherapist, Sam Bunsley. So it sounds like a case of right place, right time for you in your MD, PhD. Was it the same for you, Sid? Yeah, I'd uh, agree. I I would agree with what Dan says. I mean, it was sort of one of those things where all the stars just lined up and I was fortunate enough to say yes at the right time to get get the ball rolling. And yeah, my journey through it was pretty much the same as um, Dan's going into it. So again, uh, I had my meeting with Prof and Saturday at six o'clock as well. Uh, But I had mine in Jan. I, I got in a bit early compared to everyone else and had the project locked in and then yeah within like the first uh, meeting that we had together in about July or August he just offered you know if you're interested in a PhD just let me know and I was I just said yes and just see where it all went after that. Being MD PhDs makes you guys kind of academic rock stars so you must have blitzed high school and your undergraduate degrees is that right? I I don't think I'd agree with that I mean I I'll take the word rockstar though, I, I wouldn't mind that one, but definitely didn't breeze through high school. I remember I, I, I remember telling my parents this long, not long ago that reflecting back on my time in high school, I probably didn't apply myself as much as I thought I should have. And I really enjoyed learning in a university environment where you, you're able to lead your own discoveries and lead the pathway that you wanted to uh, go down. And I really sort of flourished in that university aspect and really picked up from an academic point of view after I entered my undergraduate degree. And then after that, again, sort of things just happened to fall into place, which led me to where I am now. Yeah, sort of similar. Definitely didn't blitz through high school and undergrad. I um, The way I'd say it is I always get through by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> so, but I always do get through. So um, like medical school, for example, I sat the GAMSAT, didn't get in. Uh, I had an interview over at the University of WA and it was a really strange interview. And to be totally honest, I wasn't really ready at 20 years old in my life to move over there and sort of uphold uh, like sort of all the upheaval that I, that would involve. And so when I got knocked back from that offer, which was my lowest preference um, at that time, I was actually kind of relieved more than disappointed. 
So I took a year off and I worked as a traffic controller of all things. And I sat the game set again and um, boosted my score. I actually interviewed at, the, at uh, Monash in Churchill. I'm out at the rural campus for the postgraduate program. Um, but I ended up getting into Melbourne, which is my second preference that time. So as future doctors who are now doing an MD, PhD program, it makes sense that you guys are inquisitive and want to solve the novel problems associated with doing research. But had you always intended on doing a PhD? No, I had never intended on doing a PhD or anything to do with research. So I I didn't even have any interest in doing honours um, after undergraduate degree, to be totally honest. I, um, I wanted to be away from university for a while, um, which is why I went off and just did something completely different and made some money. And then came into the MD program and I knew very little about it. I didn't know anybody going into it. I'd sort of like lost contact with anyone. And then, so, I, but I was aware that we did a research project later on. So I knew it was built in, but a PhD was not even on my mind at all. It wasn't until actually second year of medicine when I was in Bendigo, when we heard from our, our surgical rotation was run by somebody named Dr. Chris Cuthbertson and she's done everything. So she, um, she did her PhD and had three kids while she was doing her PhD and then, um, you know, went onto the surgical training pathway. She took time off from her registrar training to do the PhD, finished off her registrar training, and then basically living on savings with her family, moved to Nepal for one or two years and worked there pretty much volunteering. And that was incredible. And then she came back and ran the show for us. So I had no idea until then, but I thought, okay, well, firstly, that got me interested in surgery and, and it got me interested, just sort of like planted the seed about doing the PhD. So I think when Prof um, put it on the table, and I was also becoming aware of how intensely competitive it is to get onto training programs and how big a deal research is. I think um, the PhD sort of seemed like a natural next step if I had the opportunity to do so. And how about you, Sid? Did you have an interest in research growing up or in your undergraduate degree or even during the MD? Um, not growing up, but I dabbled in a bit of research in my undergrad degree and sort of put my foot in the water doing some animal research in my final year. And I was fortunate enough to get a publication through that. So I sort of had a bit of an idea about the entire research process, but in my mind, I knew I didn't want to do animal research going forward. It just wasn't for me. Um, so I was interested in entering into medicine and, then, and I knew entering in that you had the opportunity to do a, a pretty good, decent chunk of time spending doing research. So I was excited by that, but definitely not to the extent of, you know, going on to spend three years dedicating your life to basically research in the form of a PhD. That sort of just evolved with, again, as I said before, the opportunity was on the table. So I said, why not? Let's just take it. It seems to me like certainly at Melbourne Uni, it's there's this clinician researcher thing, this concept of clinicians to be researchers, to, to do both or to extend your skill set. How important do you guys think being a clinician researcher is? Do you think everyone should be a clinician researcher in their medical practice or it should be separate? People that want to be a clinician can just be a clinician and not worry about research. Well, I suppose the idea of a clinician researcher is embedded in you as a doctor whether you do research in some way shape or other or if you don't um, I guess inherent in medical practice you read papers you read research just to stay up to date with what's out there on the world and in some respects that makes you a researcher anyway because you're you know reading what's out there synthesizing the information in your own mind and then implementing that into your own practice and speaking to a lot of clinicians out there they read something in a paper they make a few changes in the way they do their practice and essentially run their own experiments to a certain extent to see, you know, does it actually improve outcomes in their patient cohort? So I, I don't think the idea of a 
clinician and a researcher should be two separate things. I think inherently as doctors, we are researchers and whatever we do, it's inherent in what we do. Yeah, I think I, I pretty much agree. There's, and I think that sort of flexibility is a real highlight of the medical pathway. Like we're all pretty privileged to be on this road, um, especially having spent that year as a traffic controller. I know that <laughs> most of the world is locked into jobs that they'd rather not be doing, but um, we get you know pretty limitless options really. And the clinician researcher pathway, it can take so many different forms and you don't need to do something formal like an MD, PhD. Like Sid said, you can contribute to research even by creating a data set that other people then analyze, for example. Um, like that's an invaluable research uh, resource for researchers. So I think um, between clinician work, uh, researcher and teaching, uh, and also these days there's advocacy you can go down so and addressing the media there's so many different roads that you can go down I think it's um, sort of open for people to choose their own adventure to a degree which is quite exciting so speaking of adventures I'd love to hear about your journey through MD1 to MD3 so that's first year of the doctor of medicine at Melbourne Uni to the third year so both of you have still got your final year to complete once you've finished your PhD so I'd like to hear about what it was like for you guys going through and maybe you could touch on what, if, if there was something during that journey that made you become interested in becoming an orthopod. Yeah, so MD1 for me, I think, you know, everyone's in the same building pretty much. Um, the university is introducing a rural pathway where you'll get to do, I think, uh, first year up in Shepparton as well. So that'll change things a little bit. But when I went through it, you know, everyone's in the same boat and you're in um, CSL and PCP, which are your kind of case-supported learning and your principal's clinical practice classes together. So, and then you split off um, after that into various clinical schools. So you get to know everyone and you build these connections that it doesn't matter really where you go. I think it's, you know, it's very heavy on the content, um, the theoretical basis of everything that you're doing and learning the stock standard approaches to taking a history and doing an examination just so that you can then go into the hospitals. So MD2, MD1 was kind of, um, yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. It was, it was tough, but I think uh, previous years before me, they had many more lectures to do and it was even more intense in the transition to the new program. So people had it much harder than us, even when we started. Uh, MD2, I think, was sort of when it really came alive to me because we actually get to go into the hospital and see patients. And in Bendigo, it was a brand new hospital that year in 2017. So that was a um, totally different experience and there was a lot of freedom in that. I came into medicine wanting to be a pediatrician uh, and I had a sort of bias against surgeons based on what people say about what they're like. And I didn't think I was like that. But then I met some surgeons in MD2 and sort of, them, you know, they're just people too and there's people in every specialty that you know have different personalities that you might click with you might not and I just um, I remember seeing uh, it was an open thyroidectomy so somebody had their neck sliced open and the surgeon was basically just giving us an anatomy lesson while this person was just under general anesthetic on the table and I was like that is the coolest thing ever I can't believe you get paid for that so I think I want to go down this road and then later that year after my orthopedic rotation so that I saw that surgery after orthopedics wasn't really interested um, it was on my GP rotation. I rotated through as a, um, she was a uh, surgical assistant for an orthopedic surgeon and I saw a hip replacement and that was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. So I thought, okay, this, I think I want to go down that road. And that was a few months before the uh, MD3 started when I was, I was in the extended rural cohort. So I was in Shepparton that year. So I went from Melbourne to Bendigo to Shepparton and there's a lot of GP placement that year, so I didn't get much more exposure to surgery, but we had those research projects that we could do. So I sort of put my hand up for that. And um, MD, 
As opposed to MD2, MD3 is a bit more chaotic. You're on different rotations and physically you have to move around a bit more. So up in the rural cohort, you go from Shepparton, uh, Echuca, Wangaratta, and I did a little bit in Albury-Wodonga. Um, so few different little places um, and then you've got your research requirements and just a whole bunch of things to get signed off which can be a bit of a hassle sometimes so I think but I think honestly if I look back on MD2 I kind of went into it very fixated on learning content and getting things signed off where I could have spent a lot more time just doing the things that I enjoyed just going into theatre and going into clinics and not worrying so much about learning something to pass an exam um, because, you know, there are certain things that you'll see in MD2 that you may never really see again, um, especially in theatre and things like that. So if you've got the opportunity, just kind of just enjoy it a bit more. And Sid, what clinical school were you allocated to for your clinical years? So I was based out of the Royal Melbourne. So we, I did my second year as MD2 in Royal Melbourne. And then in third year, we got moved around a little bit. So did my women's term in the Royal Women's, did my kids term at the Royal Children's Hospital and then did my aged care uh, term at, Nor- at Royal Park, which is just up the road from RMA. So it was all basically in the Parkville precinct. I didn't, unlike Dan, I didn't get the opportunity to move around all over Victoria for all my rotations, but it was also just centred around uh, Royal Melbourne for me. And do either of you miss case-supported learning? Uh, I suppose uh, I miss the hummus and the, uh, the, the food <laughs> that was catered for during the time. Uh, but in all honesty, it was probably the best way to actually learn what you read in a textbook and sort of in a collaborative environment to work through problems, developing those sort of intricate mechanisms, describing different phenomena you may see as a clinical sign or a symptom that a patient may have. So I think it was definitely a a rewarding and worthwhile aspect, but certainly after moving into clinical years, it's a, it's a lot more fun to just be, you know, talking with patients and actually seeing it in the flesh. I definitely enjoyed a lot of the beefs that got started between students with strong personalities. I think that was the highlight of CSL for me was somebody who just very clearly thought one thing and somebody else who very clearly thought another thing. And they would just have at it in this tutor. And we had tutors who kind of enjoyed it a bit too. So they'd moderate, but they'd also just sit there and let them duke it out, which was always a lot of fun to watch. So both of you were very fortunate to win the Australian Orthopaedic Association Joint University Scholarship. And once you complete your MD-PhD programs, you'll be really strong applicants for Australia's AOA 21 Orthopaedic Training Program. So could you guys tell me about the requirements that you know of to get onto the Orthopaedic Training Program and if you've got any other plans to ensure that you are accepted onto that program? Well, I suppose... The best place for me to start was just to read what's on the AOA website. Every year they publish, you know, the selection criteria to be considered onto the program and exactly what you need uh, to get interviews. So as far as I understand, you need to meet a minimum CV requirement, which is, I think, six, six points, and you can fulfill those six points in a number of different ways, whether that be through research or uh, presenting posters, presenting research or uh, doing additional courses, um, PhD for me, but you can easily do a master's or graduate certificates or anything of that sort. And then after that point, it's realistically now up to basically how you perform in an interview when your referee reports, whether, you, uh, whether you're lucky enough to get a position on the training program. I mean, certainly the competition's quite fierce at the moment to get onto orthopedics and I'd be uh, entering into a cohort that's very large and very strong. So I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how long it's going to take me to get on, but hopefully one day. I can get on. We had a presentation the other day, actually through Opus, with Professor Ian Inkle, who was the head of the education um, at the AOA. 
And he showed a graph that over the years showed that the CV used to contribute about 20%, I think, to your overall score to get onto the um, orthopedic training program. Now it's just a hurdle requirement with no score attached to it. Uh, and the interview is becoming increasingly more important, uh, more so than the referee reports, I believe, as well. So the interview, and I've heard, I remember speaking to somebody who um, was a set one, um, so first year accredited registrar in orthopedics, and I asked her, you know, how did you crack the code? How did you get onto the program? It's so um, competitive. And she was saying, yeah, it's really all about the interview. And she just rehearsed her answers and practiced them so much that she really knew them. And to a degree, like as few surprises as possible in the day. So, yeah, I think, you know, the PhD people, I remember when I signed up to it, people would sort of say, oh, is it a golden ticket or something like that? I was never under any illusion that it was a golden ticket to get onto the program. And nor did I think that it was just a matter of getting three points on a CV. That would be a pretty hardcore way just to get three points when you can do it in many different other ways. Uh, It was more just about the um, connections that you make through the whole thing, what you learn and what you contribute. I think doing a PhD is a way to contribute to research while you also get something out of it. Um, So yeah, it's been a really rewarding way to go through it and kind of set me up for the future. And I think Sid and I, there are a number of research requirements on the orthopedic training program that we will have already met if we get onto it. Um, by then, which might actually save a bit of time and enable us to focus on the clinical aspect a little bit more, which would be nice. Could you touch on both of you, your experiences in winning that scholarship I talked about, the AOA Joint University Scholarship at Melbourne Uni and and what you guys did with it? friend of mine um, who was placed at RMH at the time, he just walked past um, a notice board and he saw it and he knew that I was interested in orthopedics. So he took a picture and sent it to me and that's how I found out about it. I didn't know otherwise. So I thought, okay, I may as well apply. Um, And at the time, I don't don't know if the requirements change each year, but it was quite focused on travel. So if you get a research project and you go present internationally, for example, you can use this towards your tickets and accommodation or something like that. So I um, applied because I'd be doing a lot of driving around, potentially flying somewhere for my MDRP just while I was in Shepparton and driving between Melbourne and Shepparton a lot. Um, so I applied on that basis, just gave an outline of the project and I sort of, you know, got it all written up and I didn't, I don't know, I don't think I really expected to get it. I just put it through and thought may as well give it a shot. And I still remember the day where I got notified that I'd been accepted. Um, I was up in, um, Shepparton on my mental health rotation. I was like, okay, that's a surprise. But it was, um, it was really great because that basically did go towards petrol money and various other bits and pieces that were, um, costing a bit of money at the time. So yeah, it really, really helped a lot. And how about you, Sid? Yeah, so I got the scholarship, I think it was in uh, 2019. And for me, the scholarship was mainly uh, to go travel to Edinburgh and then do a month-long rotation in orthopedics at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. Um, so re- really, that, that was the rotation that really cemented going into orthopedics for me. Um, and yeah, the scholarship was great. Basically, just paid for airfares and paid for accommodations. So I didn't really feel the hurt of going all the way to Europe. And thankfully, it was before COVID started because I think I came back in January and then in February is when we first heard about COVID in 2020 so I lucked out in that but yeah it was, it was a great experience. Yeah so another case of being in the right place at the right exactly. time. So on top of all this stuff that you guys have done what are some of the other things that you've got in the pipeline going forward between now and hopefully getting onto the orthopedic training program to help ensure that you guys can actually be successful in doing that? I, I suppose for me it'll be just as soon as I get this sort of research side of things done, just hitting the ground running with clinical work, um, ensuring that I've got quite a, a wide variety of rotations and not just surgical, but, you know, uh, expanding out into sort of emergency medicine or even ICU. Um, it's a lot, uh, as, as a large chunk of orthopedics is to deal with trauma and a lot of the traumas when they first end up, end up in ICU or in the ED. So it's always good to get a bit of exposure with that. 
And how about you, Dan? Yeah, similar to Sid, I think there's a certain degree of preparing for the future, but then also just doing what I'm doing at the moment and then figuring it out when I get there, especially when the requirements change every year. So I wouldn't get too hung up on what the requirements are right now based on last year's applicants, because if you you put all your eggs in that basket, it's likely to change. In fact, it's almost guaranteed to change, at least to some degree. So for the moment, yeah, same to Sid. I'm I'm a year ahead of Sid, so he was he um, started medical school a year after me. So I'll be graduating medical school next year, and I think a similar sort of thing, getting those uh, just a wide variety of rotations, but making sure I have enough orthopedic rotations in the years leading up to my application, making sure I um, study hard for the um, general surgical sciences examination. Um, and there's resources, great resources available to do that, that now. So I'll get onto that and then just, yeah, just keeping it. That's when I'll keep a closer eye on the requirements each year and just make sure that I'm ticking those boxes. I'm getting my referee reports and whenever I have any time or any opportunity to get into theater, um, possibly just getting into theater just to keep the interest up really. So it's one thing at a time basically for both of you. So that's, that sounds like good advice for anyone generally, but what are some of the other tips that you guys have for people that might want to get into the medical degree itself or those that are in the medical degree that might want to do the MD, PhD? What are some of your pearls of wisdom that you guys can share? Uh, apply widely. I mean, I was really surprised when I got into medicine just how many people, a lot more than I thought, actually just apply to Melbourne to do a Commonwealth-supported place and nowhere else. That was totally foreign to me. I filled all my six spots each time with every spot available except for full fee uh, and made sure I didn't tick that box. Um, but but if you are in a position to do that, then go for it. You've really got to maximize your chances and that's the most obvious way to do so. Uh, and don't worry about where you go. In Australia, it doesn't really matter which medical school you're at. I mean, it can matter from a life perspective if you're not really in a position to move to the other side of the country, for example, which I could have made work if I got to the University of WA, for example, but wasn't really too keen on that idea. But um, yeah, apply wherever you're willing to go. Um, I know plenty of people who have moved up to Queensland for medicine, for example, and people from Queensland who have moved down here and so on. Um, so, And then the other thing is when you're setting the GAMSAT, for example, there's a lot of people out there trying to take your money to <laughs> prepare you for the exam. And it's, there can be some good um, advice out there. But be wary about who you give your money to before you do so. And then once you're in medical school and trying to get onto an MD-PhD, I think, um, as you said, it's pretty serendipitous for Sid and I. It was the right place, right time. But we did put our hand up. I mean, there were um, two other students with me at the time. And neither of them were in a position for various reasons to um, put their hand up to do the PhD at the time. Um, so I was the one who was able and willing to do it. And I did so. And my wife was sort of keen to basically take on the PhD life with me as well for three years. So you've got to show that you're keen. I think that's the thing. Prof probably wouldn't have offered us the opportunity if we were blasé about it. So we showed that we were keen to do it. Um, We were on top of things with our research. We were interested and we were in it for the long haul. We were committed because when a supervisor who is experienced like Prof is wouldn't want to take on a student who he doesn't have a reasonable certainty that is actually going to see this thing through. So show that you're keen and show that you're reliable. How about you, Sid? Um, I suppose for people wanting to get into medicine, certainly something for me that an opportunity I didn't take up uh, as a year in in my sort of high school days or even as an undergraduate student was um, the opportunity to shadow doctors or to take on work experience opportunities. I remember at the Royal Melbourne, they take on a couple of year, year 10 students every year or, or did when I was at Royal Melbourne. So you, you get to sort of follow around surgical teams, get to go into theatre, get to experience what 
what it's like as a junior doctor, what it's like as a consultant to, to find out if, if you actually really do like it. Because I know a few people sort of enter into medicine and they may have a change of heart or they, they thought medicine is going to be a bit different to what, what it, it, it actually is. So I think for people entering, it's really important to have a realistic idea of what it is actually like as a job. Um, and I suppose for people wanting to get onto a PhD, completely agree with what Dan said. So it's about showing commitment, sort of showing that you were really wanting to do the PhD. But I think another important aspect that isn't so much talked about is when you enter into PhD, when you talk to a certain people, it sort of signals that you've made your mind up about a specialty to a certain extent. Certainly for, for what I'm doing, it's sort of mainly applicable to arthroplasty, but there's opportunities to apply my sort of um, my, my research to other areas of medicine. And obviously the skills are uh, able to be used in any aspect of medicine and in life in general. But once you enter a PhD, you're kind of pigeonholing yourself into a specialty to a certain extent. And because of that, I think it's important while you've got the opportunity of, you know, being on the boards in your second and third year to take up every opportunity you can to speak to patients. You know, if you're interested in surgery, go to theatre as much as you as much as you possibly can. Speak to registrars, get to know them really well. Speak to residents, get to know them really well. Get to know what the job is like as a, for example, as an orthopedic resident. What do they do on a daily basis? What, you know, what's a realistic time frame to get onto? Um, uh, get, get on as an orthopedic resident what's the realistic time frame to get an unaccredited position then go from an unaccredited to an accredited position so I think really having the opportunity to talk to people who are on the training program talk to consultants to really make your mind up whether you know when you do a PhD you're sort of committing your life to a, to a, to a certain extent for three years to just one thing and you kind of want to enter it knowing that that is what you actually want to do yeah and one more thing I like is choose your supervisor wisely so I think that's that's actually probably the most important thing because as Prof says, um, there's plenty of people that are interested in research who might even put their hand up to take on a research student, but if they don't have a track record of actually seeing people through PhDs, everyone's got to have their first PhD student they bring from go to war. So, but you know, if you can get somebody with an established uh, record of actually taking on PhD students and getting them graduated, that um, that is critical um, because you don't want to you're setting yourself up but they are also investing a lot of time and energy and you want to make sure that they don't just have an interest but they actually know how to guide you through the entire process because at the end of the day research is interesting and you go in it with an idea and that idea evolves and goes off into a bunch of different directions but at the end of the day the thesis is a very clean um, document that's written up of your whole messy journey and you need somebody who can translate one to the other and actually bring it to that point in the end so that's really critical thanks so much for your time today guys excellent thanks 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 for having me cheers thank you for listening to the orthopod you can find us on facebook twitter and instagram by the handle at somagrad group or on our website somagradgroup.com see you in the next episode